I appreciate you playing there. It would be great uh, if in ministry uh, everybody was behind you all the time, wouldn't it? Everything that we did uh, in the church, people would be 100% on board. I mean, you're trying to help people. Uh, you're trying to grow people. Life's, lives are being changed for the better. And uh, by the way, the world hates that. Satan wants to do everything he can to stop it. Uh, we're moving to Acts 18, if you are, while you're turning there. Uh, not only do we see resistance, though, from the world, we often see resistance in, within the church walls itself. Now, tonight, we're going to continue to see how Paul responds to different reactions. Because it is in the response to a conflict or a potential conflict that we often uh, escalate the problem in our responses. We make them bigger than what they uh, would be. What is, uh, forget that phrase, uh, a spiritual, a, a carnal person will turn a molehill into a mountain. A spiritual person turns a mountain into a molehill. Uh, you know, you, you have those that can blow up a little problem and make it big because it's in our responses. Now, I got this list. This isn't something I wrote, but I, I thought it was good. Uh, how to turn a disagreement into a fight. Because so often you start out with just a simple disagreement and then it escalates. Here's a few ways you can turn a disagreement into a fight. Number one, be sure to develop and maintain a healthy fear of conflict, letting your own feelings build up so you are in an explosive frame of mind. Can I tell you uh, that conflict or um, uh, uh, talking to somebody about a problem, this can be a good thing. Uh, I'm not talking about conflict ugly, but uh, confrontation. That's what I'm trying to, the word I'm looking for. Positive confrontation, uh, confronting a problem. But uh, if you want to turn it into a fight, develop a healthy fear of that and don't deal with it. Number two, if you must state your concerns, be as vague and general as possible. Then the other person cannot do anything practical to change the situation. Number three, assume you know all the facts and you are totally right. <laughs> assume that and it'll turn a disagreement into a fight. Uh, number four, with a touch of defiance, announce your willingness to talk with anyone who wishes to discuss the problem with you, but do not take steps to initiate the conversation. Number five, latch tenaciously onto whatever evidence you can find that shows the other person's just jealous of you. Judge the motivation. Number six, judge the motivation of the other party. Keep track of angry words. Make lists everything they do. That's a way to solve a problem, isn't it? Make lists of what other people do. Uh, number seven, avoid possible solutions and go only for total victory and unconditional surrender. Don't get too many options on the table. Uh, in other words, you're not ready to work it out. You uh, want complete and unconditional surrender. Number eight, pass the buck. Uh, just keep passing the buck and uh, do that over and over. Paul, though, he responded in better ways than that, as we have seen already and continue to in chapter 18 here. Let's look at starting at verse number 1, and I think we'll read for now through verse 11, and we might look at a few more verses uh, if uh, the time varies, uh, uh, tarries here. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth and found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because that Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome and came unto them. And because he was of the same craft, he abode with them and wrought, for by their occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. 
And when Silas and Timotheus were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. And when they opposed themselves and blasphemed, he shook his raiment and said unto them, Your blood be upon your own heads, I am clean. From henceforth I will go unto the Gentiles. And he departed thence and entered into a certain man's house named Justice, one that worshipped God, whose house joined hard to the synagogue. <coughs> and Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision, Be not afraid, but speak, and hold not thy peace. For I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Father, I pray you'd help us in the next few moments here. May we see something here from Paul's example and others that would be a help to us. In Jesus' name, amen. We see the place he came to here was Corinth. Paul, departing from Athens, came to Corinth. In Paul's day, Corinth was the political capital of Greece. It was the seat of the Roman proconsul. It had harbors that faced both uh, east and west on two seas, which would make it a natural uh, primary marketplace between Asia and Italy. Corinth was famous for immoral worship of the god Venus. Now, seaports and sailors have a reputation, you could say. Have you ever heard the phrase, he cursed like a sailor? All right, they have a reputation like that for a reason uh, of being lewd and depraved. Corinth outdid it all here. The temple of Venus alone housed over a thousand sacred concubines and uh, concubines, really, uh, harlots was no, be, no, no more than what they were. As the very name of Corinth then became a name for, uh, or a synonym for debauchery. In classic Greek, the word Corinthe azomai, uh, what mean, means to act like the Corinthians, really meant to practice fornication. And they were known for this. Uh, this fact uh, will, it really explains much of the letter of 1 Corinthians. If you read 1 Corinthians lately. Paul deals with a lot of that in that letter. Also, when Paul is writing Romans chapter 1, uh, when you read Romans chapter 1, he talks about uh, all the lewd uh, and uh, desires of man and how he turns them over to a reprobate mind. He was in Corinth when he wrote Romans chapter 1. The perversions that he describes in that chapter are all about him while he's writing it. So this was the place to which this missionary came at Corinth. None of Paul's um, Athens behavior, like the appeals to the intellect that he had in Athens, totally different thing here he's dealing with. And so he, he seems to have set this preaching aside. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, he wrote later, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, verse number 2, uh, we see uh, the, not only the place, but the people. And he found certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Uh, there were times the Roman Empire saw outbreaks of anti-Semitism. And the Jews here uh, <coughs> in, that, excuse me, in that day, they didn't do much to make themselves lovable to the Gentiles. You know, if, you're, if you call a group of people dogs, typically they're not going to love you for it. And that's how they kind of treated the Gentiles. Their religious laws, their customs set them apart. Uh, they didn't make any attempt to cover the disguise uh, or to disguise the contempt that they felt uh, for Gentiles and the idolatry and immorality. 
And when they arose to any high positions, they would use and leverage those positions, taking advantage of it. So there was a general Gentile dislike for the Jews. Add to that, the Romans always had problems holding uh, Judea in subjection, which did not endear the Jews to them anymore. So Emperor Claudius here, Claudius, in verse 2, the Bible says, banish the Jews from Rome. Probably... Uh, read as to how he did that, rather than just send them out of the city, saying you against the law for Jews to live anymore, he forbid them to congregate. I found that interesting. If a Jew can't congregate, it's basically akin to evicting them because it would interfere with their worship. And uh, the reason I found that interesting is we're kind of facing the same edicts today in many places. I don't know if you've noticed in the last uh, two weeks several news, uh, it's made national and worldwide news of several pastors who stood up in Canada and refused to let their churches be shuttered, as they're doing many places where they're actually chaining and locking the front doors to churches, not allowing them <coughs> to congregate. And so uh, that's very possibly what he did there, causing them to leave uh, Rome. Two of the Jews affected by this were Aquila and Priscilla. Uh, these, this couple had settled in Corinth, uh, where they worked their business of tent making. Now, we're not told whether they were already Christians, but it seems they were. Uh, this was Paul's first contact when he came to Corinth. Then we see that they became partners in verse 3. He was of the same craft, abode with them, and wrought for by their occupation they were tent makers. So among every Jewish boy, uh, he is at some point taught a trade. Uh, the, the, even the most famous rabbis were expected to support themselves and some gainful occupation. They didn't get paid for their teaching. In his native Cilician home, Paul would have learned to weave goat's hair into cloth, and they would make tents and coats and curtains from this material. And so in Corinth, he naturally gravitated to those that were engaged in the kind of work he did. I think it's uh, admirable that Paul was not above earning and uh, money to support himself. Aquila and Priscilla befriended him they gave him employment. But that didn't keep him from giving out the word. In verse number 4, he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. And so during the week he worked at this job and raised some funds for himself. And then on the weekend, on the Sabbath, he would go to the synagogue and he would preach Christ. Corinth was an important commercial center. And so we can assume there was certainly a large Jewish synagogue in that city. And as usual, Paul met those people in the synagogue and he would dialogue with them. He was a tireless ambassador for Christ. As we sang earlier, uh, it says in Philippians 1.21, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. With a life's motto like that, he was all about giving the gospel of Christ. He did not waste any opportunity. Every Sabbath, the Bible says here, he took the advantage uh, to speak and make an impression on many, as we'll see uh, in a moment here. Plus, he spoke with authority. His background of a, as a rabbi, his education would give him an audience. His personal experience with Jesus Christ would give him the passion, and the Holy Spirit would give him the power. Isn't that a great combination? Uh, he had the power, he had the passion, and then he also had his audience. And so he continued to work here, captivating both Jews and Gentiles. Now, look at the pressure he got from the Spirit in verse number 5. And when Silas and Timotheus were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the Spirit and testified to the Jews 
that Jesus was Christ. Now, the arrival of his colleagues would do several things for Paul. No doubt he was eager to hear <coughs> news from his uh, Thessalonian converts. And also, we find from 2 Corinthians 11, 8, Philippians 4, 5, that a gift of money from his friends at Philippi accompanied them. This allowed him to stop working his job, and he would devote himself full-time to missionary work. The presence of Silas and Timothy gave him also much-needed moral support. How important this is. You can take the pressures of ministry if you have good men at your side, and he did. I cannot state this enough, <coughs> the, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the importance of having a good group of people serving together. Paul had a renewed passion. He had the task of winning Jews to Israel's true and only Messiah, Jesus Christ. But look what happens in verse 6. Uh, verse 6, And when they opposed themselves and blasphemed, he shook his raiment and said unto them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean from henceforth. I will go to the Gentiles. Let me remind you of a couple of things. Number one, Paul, it was Paul that at one point said that he would be cursed for the people of Israel. He would go to hell if Israel could go to heaven. That's how much he cared for Israel. Let me remind you of something else. At one time, Paul, before he was saved and then probably up until his salvation and maybe shortly afterward, uh, he hated Gentiles. They, in their blood, hated Gentiles. Everything about them, Gentiles were dogs. Now, Paul's preaching here stirred the opposition of the Jews. The original word that Luke uses for they opposed themselves there is to rage in battle against. The opposition became blasphemous. And at that point, Paul shook his garment somehow, I don't know if it was to signify shaking the dust off the way Jesus said, uh, but he shook his garment, signifying his utter and complete abandonment here of the synagogue. As far as he was concerned, and as far as they were concerned, Paul's done. Look at what he says. <coughs> your blood be upon your own heads. I'm clean. The reason I'm clean is I've given you the message. I've given you the gospel. From henceforth, I'll go to the Gentiles. I find that fascinating that this is Paul Paul now Paul not lately we've seen in the last few chapters Paul's adamant about taking the gospel to the Gentiles but this is a change that's come across in his heart since he's been a Christian uh, to where he is now going toward the Gentiles after this the Jews are to blame for their unbelief he's given them the message he would go to the Gentiles where his message was going to be appreciated uh, later in Ephesus, Paul again went to the synagogue, chapter 19, verse 8, to witness. So it's not like he never stepped foot in the synagogue again. But here he says, I've had enough. And I think that the key was they blasphemed. Now, I've kind of followed this pattern in my own life. How long do you witness to someone? You know, we had this question last week in discipleship. Uh, we were discussing about uh, the question was raised, do we still pray for those that it's too late for them to be saved. Uh, first of all, we don't know if it's too late for anybody. We don't know it, that situation in anybody's life. I do believe people cross a line. God turns them over to a reprobate mind, and they just 
Not that they can't get saved. They just, uh, this, the conviction of the Holy Spirit maybe is done with them. We never know when that is. Uh, I'm not even going to say if it is in anybody's life, okay? So as far as I'm concerned, if you're breathing, you can get saved. If you're breathing, you're a candidate to be witnessed to. Now, they, there may be a line, but we don't know where that is. That's between them and God. We still ought to be faithful at giving the gospel. However, I have in several occasions been in a situation where somebody will blaspheme the name of God or God directly. Uh, I remember a, a specific uh, instance. It was in Brighton, Michigan, witnessing to a young man. He said things that, that made me want to step back just in case God's still in the lightning business, you know. Because uh, the things he said, I can't imagine even thinking those things. Horrible cursing, cursed God, asked what's God ever done for me. Uh, which I said, you walked in here today, didn't you? I mean, I, I listed a few things, but basically that conversation's over. I understand the, I got a, I mean, I don't know if you've ever been there. I got a sick, sick feeling in my heart and my soul when you hear God blasphemed. And Paul said, that's it. That's it. You're going to blaspheme him? I'm done with you. I'm going to the Gentiles. Your blood's on your own head now. And I think that that is probably a wise step at that point. If somebody is going to blaspheme the Lord, uh, no use arguing, no use getting into a fight. Uh, this is done. What does the Bible say, by the way, that we're forgiven for any sin except blaspheming the Holy Ghost? And so we need to be careful there. It was almost a relief. And this is, I, I wrote this statement down. I'm thinking, wow, that doesn't sound right. But just listen to what I'm saying and see if you don't know where I'm coming from. It's almost a relief when Paul turned from the viciousness of the synagogue to the vileness of the city. Now, you wouldn't think so, but at least the corrupt Corinthians recognized their need for a Savior. And that's just what happened. There, people listened. This is not a new thing. It's still true today uh, that it's easier to win people in the ghetto than it is in the country club. It's a, in Lansing, we did bus routes in Lansing, and I uh, did several different routes, and we ran the bus in different spots. I think we had, at one time, three buses going, and we had one that, for a while, I was in the ghetto of Lansing. I mean, it was in the really bad part. I, there was, when we would go visit our bus kids, uh, there was two probably gang guys, I don't know, but they would follow me about a block back, and they would tell people not to mess with, this is a... This is a church guy, church guy, and you'd let me... They were very respectful to us. My wife visited one of her uh, Sunday school kids one night, and they were dividing up marijuana bags on the table while she's talking to mom and dad about the kids coming to church. I mean, this is a rough area. And they were very receptive, very respectful, very open to us. And then, at a different time, <clears throat> I went to a, the neighborhood. Uh, there's another section of Lansing. It's, where the, it's the capital city of uh, Michigan, so... The governor's mansion's up there, and we're talking gated community. They're about as hard and unfriendly and unreachable as anybody you'd want. They're very, very well off. It's always been the case. People like the people in Athens wanted nothing to do. There weren't many people want in Athens. And then Paul goes to Corinth, where they are wicked, debauchery, sinful, horrible people, and they're getting saved. The Bible says many receive Christ. Sin is... Uh, people, I mean, it's really true. People that are in the depths of sin are closer to salvation than people who are rich and well-off, especially if they're religious. 
And uh, why? It's because of what we were talking about this morning. Their faith is in a different thing. Their faith is in their money. Their faith is in their connections. Their faith is in who they know. And it's hard for them to change that faith and redirect it to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, anyway, uh, rabbit trail. Verse 7. Paul uh, found, had some followers here. He departed thence and entered a certain man's house named Justice, one that worshipped God and one whose house joined hard to the synagogue. Paul did not <laughs> have to go very far to find a meeting place. So the synagogue wanted nothing to do with him. Where He said, well, I've got to find another place. Where am I going to find another place? Next door, attached to the synagogue. I think that's hilarious. I was reading this today thinking, that's, that's the funniest thing in this whole passage. So here these people want nothing to do with Paul. Now they've got to hear him next door. Saved by the blood of the crucified one. And their Christians are singing and he's preaching and they're rejoicing. And he's right next to the synagogue. Uh, it must have, uh, might have been better for the peace of mind of everybody if he'd have moved clean across town. But he just decided to set up shop right beside him there. And uh, it would annoy the Jews. In fact, G Paul said later in Romans 11, 11, it provoked them to jealousy. They didn't like it. The house joined hard to the synagogue might have been attractive because it belonged to justice. History tells us that justice was probably a Roman citizen. Some even claim that justice was, uh, the, or his Roman name was Gaius, meaning he might have been Gaius of mine host in Romans 16.23. That would mean he was one of the two Corinthians that Paul baptized, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 14. And then in verse number 8, <coughs> the Bible says, this, he had a famous convert here, Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house. Now the synagogue included two important officials, the angel of the synagogue, this would be the regular minister, he'd be responsible to pray and to teach, to take care of the law, appoint who reads the law and those type of things. And then the ruler of the synagogue would be in charge of all its other affairs, including regulating the service, this was Christ, uh, this was uh, Christus here, Crispus. He and his family got saved. They accepted Christ. He was the other person that Paul baptized in Corinth. His salvation would have made a big impact on many who were regularly attending the synagogue. Obviously, can you imagine? He has just left the synagogue, basically run out by their unbelief, and then the chief ruler gets saved and starts to join in with uh, Paul's doings there. What an impact that must have made. And it did, because verse 8 says, and many of the Corinthians hearing, believing, and were baptized. Uh, the, the, the church was growing next to the synagogue. Remember, they're meeting there. Uh, that had to be just a real, just a thorn in the side of these religious leaders. <coughs> but the, uh, they would have watched the growth of the church next door with a cynical eye, but there were too many influential people involved, really, for them to do their usual reaction of violence, it seems here. So the Jews would be seething about this. Then verse 9, I have to think that at this time, tension was starting to rise. You had the Jews right here, you had them meeting, and uh, probably it was getting a little heated, and so then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision for the from time to time, Paul got visions by God to strengthen him, to encourage him. He received a vision like that at Troas. Uh, another one when he was arrested in Jerusalem, chapter 23, verse 11. And now, as he's starting to feel the pressure here, the Lord came again to his faithful preacher. Look at what he says, verse number 9. Be not afraid, but speak, 
and hold not thy peace. That's just what Paul needed. Keep on going, the Lord says. Don't stop preaching. Keep giving it to him. He was a brave man. Paul was under normal circumstances, but with this commission, he would be bolder still, I would imagine, uh, faithfully preaching the word of God. Paul's fears were natural. I think all of, I mean, look at what's happened to him up to this point. But they were needless. Later he would write uh, in a letter to the Romans, Romans 8.31, If God be for us, who can be against us? And these are the things he learned. Nobody's going to drive him out of Corinth. In fact, he's going to stay here for the foreseeable future. And oh, what, what a blessing it is when men have a courage to do the work. Courage to keep on doing what they were supposed to be doing. We ought to be confident as we do the work of the church in our community as well. Uh, let's not let things uh, sidetrack us from doing what we need to do. In the last year, uh, as you know, many of you felt the same thing. Uh, I received many calls uh, chiding about, not about meeting for COVID. Got calls chiding because we cut certain things because of COVID. I mean, you always get it from both sides. Uh, some people got upset because we met at all. Uh, some people got upset because we didn't meet for a few weeks. And uh, just all kinds of feedback from different areas. I appreciate most of our church family uh, did what was right for them. And, and that's exactly what I encourage people to do. You do what's right for you. And some people didn't come for a long time. And that's okay uh, that they, they made that decision for them. But then there's other folks that always feel their decision ought to be put on everybody else as well. And so uh, they got a little noisy at times. And uh, I'm thankful the leadership in our church was unified uh, in, in, for the most part on keeping on despite the unrest that was brought on by our situation. And I'm proud to say, maybe I'm off a little bit, but I'm proud to say that we're one of the only churches in Brookings that stayed open all last summer and did just kept on going for the Lord determined to uh, go forward. How the Lord confronted Paul here. Verse 10, For I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city. At Corinth, Paul had come to a ripened harvest field. Hadn't been much for him in Athens. The soil was poor there. Why was it poor? They were too smart. Intellectualism. They were a bunch of philosophers over there. Highfalutin nonsense had spoiled of harvest. And uh, here at Corinth, sin city. People were hungry. There were lonely people here. You know where sin abounds? There's loneliness. People were disillusioned by pleasure and worldliness. There were desperate people here. People who were not only lost, but they knew they were lost. Uh, people who were... Uh, it was a society much like many of the cities that we know today. There were sailors that were tired of their lives of drunkenness and debauchery. There were broken women, cast-offs of the temple... There were successful businessmen whose money could not buy them the happiness that they wanted. There were housewives that were struggling for a decent home that, as they lived in a city as foul as Sodom. There were those who were disgusted by the heathen religion and Jewish hypocrisy. God said, I have much people in this city. He could say that about Brookings too. I have much people in this city. The field is ripe for the harvest. It was right for the harvest for Paul here. What an outlook for, the, for this missionary. Reminds us of what Jesus said. John 4.35 Say ye not, there are yet four months, and then cometh the harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. 
our fields in front of us are white to harvest as well. We just need to be faithful in it. We see in verse 11, he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. For the next year and a half, Paul served in this great city, supported by Silas and Timothy. It was at this time that he wrote his two letters to the Thessalonians, possibly, and I happen to believe as well, the book of Hebrews. Now, this has been bitterly disputed throughout uh, probably as long as uh, people have been disputing the Bible, but uh, about the fact of uh, who wrote the book of Hebrews. But uh, these things that were written there had been discussed in the council in Jerusalem. Uh, in, while in Corinth, the attitude of the synagogue Jews are still fresh on Paul's mind. And I do believe he did write the book of Hebrews. At Corinth here, he, by the way, if you don't think he did, that's totally fine. We don't have to separate on that. Okay? Uh, let's, just, uh, let's agree that God wrote the book of Hebrews, who he wrote it through. Um, you, know, you can be... I can be right, you can be wrong, or... Nah, that's, that's it, right there. So at, at Corinth, Paul entered a new phase in his ministry missionary work here. The rapid movement where he's just been shotgunning all over the place, it kind of gives way to a more stable ministry here. For the next five years, Paul spends most of his time in two cities, in Corinth and Ephesus. Uh, this reference we have next to Galio, uh, is, uh, is, is, uh, can determine that Paul's stay in Corinth here uh, was from about the fall of 50 A.D. to the spring of 58, uh, 52 A.D. So uh, we'll get into that next week a little more, or in, in a couple of weeks. Uh, next week will be no evening service, but uh, get, talking about Galio here, a really interesting meeting, meeting with Galio and Paul. I, I think it's uh, actually a little bit humorous when that happens and what, uh, what happens here when they try to use Galio to get their way. Uh, things just weren't working out for the Jews, and we see God working through the life of Paul and the things that he was doing making an impact on others. But uh, great reaction.